0: We're Living Writers, so thanks for listening. Imagine me, a dog, moving in with a human. I didn't know how it would work. Turns out, my human's pretty entertaining. For instance, every time I give my human his ball, he throws it as far as he can. And I'm like, dude, that's your ball. So I go get it, but he just throws it. Again. I gotta say, though, the more he does it, the funnier it is. I love my human. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you
1: by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. <laughs> Good afternoon you've got living writers i'm t Hetzel today Amitov Ghosh is here in the studio Welcome amitov <laughs>
0: thank you It's a great great pleasure to be here
1: oh well it's it's lovely to to have you here and to have a chance for this conversation
0: it's a It's a real pleasure for me.
1: And you're you're in town. You're you're visiting. It's your third time here in Ann Arbor. Yes, <laughs> and you're you're back, and you're you're reading. You're also here for a, a Tagore celebration. Yes, Is this yes. And um, would would you like to talk a little bit about some of these events that bring you here?
0: Um, well, I'm doing a couple of readings, um, and um, you know, there's the uh, uh, there's the Tagore performance for which they've asked me to say a few words. So there'll be that as well.
1: And the reading on Thursday at five o'clock?
0: Thursday, five o'clock. That's right. Okay. That's right. So that's yes. the big one. So yes. everyone
1: mark that on your, your calendars. And will you be reading from River of Smoke, Amitav, Um
0: Yes, that, I'll be ta- talking about River of Smoke, actually. Yes, uh, I'll be talking about it and um, showing some slides and things.
1: Oh, so it's more of a talk than actually a
0: reading. A reading. reading. Uh, well, um, you know, um, I can do a reading. I can do a talk. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I'm going to. I, I'm going to discuss it with uh, my hosts here and see what they prefer.
1: Okay, so it's still yes. What? W- w- well, yes. Oh, I hope you have the slideshow. <laughs> uh, I think. you <laughs> put in my two cents.
0: <laughs> uh, I think the slideshow is actually more interesting than hearing me read. I think books are meant to be read in the silence of your mind, don't you?
1: well especially these worlds that you create i think mm-hmm. it lends itself to that uh,
0: yes i do think so i mean uh, uh i you know uh, uh, look i mean i for myself i must say that i prefer to uh, to read a book than to hear it read as it were you know so for me it's a very interior experience it's a very private experience reading and uh, I still have never kind of reconciled myself to hearing people read from their books. Uh, I find, you know, it's, it sounds like an absurd thing to say because no, no. I go around the world re- doing readings. But, uh, you know. <laughs> I know. And
1: today, of course, I even said, would you read a, yes. a couple of minutes on the re as well? So you can't get away from it. You no. don't have to read today if you don't want to. Well, We'll roll with it. Although we can't sl- show any slides because of no. the magic of radio. No, that's right. <laughs> okay, that's right. No, on
0: radio, we have to do uh, what we can. With our voices. Yes. We just have to yes.
1: let the vo- You know, without further ado, I'll read your short bio. Uh, bio- biography, means. and then we'll go from, go from there. Amitav Ghosh is the internationally best-selling author of many works of fiction and non-fiction, best read quietly and alone including the Glass Palace and is the recipient of numerous awards and prizes. Ghosh divides his time between Calcutta and Goa, India and Brooklyn, New York. All right. So we have lots, lots to say. And River of Smoke um, is just out with Picador in pape- the paper edition yes. um, this October. So yes, it's that's so right. So really hot off right. the presses. Yes. The season.
0: paperback edition has just come out in the U.S., Yes,
1: and, and you, at one point, this was the, the Ibis trilogy yes. that you were working on. Is it still a trilogy or are there other books that are sort of, sort of presenting themselves so that you feel like you might be <laughs> a quartet or perhaps expanding further?
0: You know, when I started writing um, uh, this book, when I started writing Sea of Poppies, I realized pretty early on that uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a single book, you know, and I, I thought of it as a trilogy then. But I thought by the time I finish the second book in the trilogy, I'll be like twenty years on, and at the oh. end of uh, you know seven years of writing and uh, five hundred pages, uh, I mean a thousand pages now.
1: Right, because these are these are heft hefty. Yes, they're uh, quite uh, substantial uh, books. Yes.
0: But I've really covered eighteen months, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know I think uh, there's quite a long way to go yet. How long I don't know, but quite a long way.
1: Um, I was reading with the, the Guardian, uh, uh, a, a, a writer at the Guardian had said how um, you introduce. I thought this was actually really well well said. These these layers of worlds. Like I, I thought of it world. Um, well, the, these worlds upon worlds upon worlds, when you you have um, a, one 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 thing, one small thing, and then it just uh, almost ripples out and you're exploring it. And I think the Guardian writer had used um, a particular food like a Samsa or 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 so. And and but you know so instead of just saying that this one character is eating it then we also see some of the layers of production or or the, some pieces of the history of the actual food which is amazing that you and now i can see why it's 18 months of this in this world that you've created because there's these moments of rich layers and depth
0: yes yes uh, um you know uh, my sort of approach to these things is that uh things that interest me uh, are, are things that I put in the book. So, you know, when I discovered really the strange history of the samosa uh, <laughs> and how it became, how it came to India and how it became such an important part of, it, of Indian cuisine, uh, you know, that fascinated me. And I thought, you know, I, I just, I, I just find these things interesting. So I put them in.
1: <laughs> and everyone's glad that you, you do. <laughs> <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so is it something where the next the next um, 500 pages, is, that, uh, is the project, are you almost done with that?
0: No, no, not even close. Uh, no, no. But uh, I'm working on it, but I'm not even close to being done with that.
1: And this is a world that you seem very happy to inhabit.
0: I am, actually. I, I You know, uh, it's been a wonderful experience for me to inhabit this world because it's a world that's really... You know, uh, it's a world that's not written about. It's a world that's, uh, you know, unexplored. Really, you know, it's a kind of new terrain for fiction, you might say. So uh, that, that's know, very
1: important. Then you know that that you're doing this work.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a peculiar kind of uh, it's a peculiar kind of enterprise in a way because actually even this history hasn't really been much written about by historians you know so often uh, i actually find myself in the in the position of having to do the research and to uh, and to make up the story simultaneously which is actually a, a kind of really thrilling thing because you know you compare it with say somebody who's writing about say tudor england mm-hmm. you know oh. Uh, you know, in our heads, we already have such a rich picture of Tudor England. We've all watched the Tudors, or we watched Elizabeth, or we watched, uh, you know, movies about Henry VIII. So all the visual clues are already there. Mm. The world that I'm writing about uh, is a world that's really completely unknown to, a- to, to anybody. Uh, so in a sense, I have to fill it in, you know, because it was a very particular and distinctive world, quite different from others.
1: And is that why at, in River of Smoke there's that moment um at, at the when there's a, a a painting that's produced and and it's it's um is if it's I'll, I'll just read a line like there um I realized that if it were not for those paintings no one would believe that such a place had ever existed.
0: And yes. Yes, that's very true. I mean, in fact, you know, this is, I mean, the world that I'm writing about, the setting of the book in the uh, River of Smoke, uh, is the foreign enclave in Canton. And the foreign enclave was uh, burnt down in 1856, and it was never rebuilt. And uh, so it is a completely disappeared, vanished world. And yet, it's a world of which we have really an extremely rich visual record. And uh, that's what makes it so exciting, because it's possible to reimagine really every bit of it. So uh, it's really r- uh, possible to reconstruct every part of it. I mean for me, you know, it's become completely real now. You know, so that I know the roads, I feel like I know the smells, I know the uh, I know the atmosphere uh, very very intimately. So and that's possible because there was this incredibly rich uh, visual uh, record of it.
1: And with this this knowledge of knowing knowing the 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 roads even and you can picture being there um how how do you how do you balance the the quest to perhaps fill in some of the the other streets and byways or or know more about the actual way people are speaking or or researching the uh, newspapers or more of the original sources with um Keeping the openings and and sort of that flow of the imagination, which is creating w- the world for these particular characters, not not just um, making a historical record or or so. How do you balance that with? Because the research could be endless too.
0: <coughs> Bless you. Um, that's a good question. Actually, it's uh, it's it's quite uh, it's not as complicated as you might think. Because really, what one does is that. Um, I try to follow my characters, you know. So if my character is going to walk down a certain road, uh, then I want to know what that road is like. Uh, or if my character is going to go out for dinner, I want to know what he's likely to eat, you know. So that al- already provides a principle of economy, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't have to in- have to research everything. I have to research things that are pertinent uh, to what my character is doing or to what, you know, uh, uh, to, you know, Uh, his actions or um, her actions. So, uh, you know, uh, that that already gives you a focus and a sort of directedness for the sort of research you're doing. So it's not as if I research randomly, you know. Right, this whole
1: breadth of uh, the the time.
0: That's right. It's it's completely different from the way that a historian would do research because a historian, you know, they do their research uh, around certain subjects or topics, let's say economics or whatever. Uh, For me, it's a completely different thing. I mean, my research is more really geared towards uh, inhabiting a place, you know, and uh, inhabiting it through characters. So you try and imagine really uh, the way in which each particular character would inhabit this often the same space, but in completely different ways.
1: So do you find yourself using more particular kinds of sources like newspapers, for example, or trying to find personal letters because you use um letters as a a vehicle in part of the novel um but when you're researching is that would those be like would a newspaper or or so be more valuable because you could picture the character actually well not dt but 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 maybe um actually maybe there weren't newspapers for the i guess are there particular avenues of the research that are that you know that that's um those would be articles that would be affecting the your particular character's lives or could be part of their lives. Uh,
0: yes, very much so. Uh, I always find that you know uh, uh, what uh, 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 what people call primary sources yes. that is diaries, newspapers, journals, these are much more useful to me than uh, let's say Uh, Books by historians, if you like. Uh, I mean, those are also very useful often. But uh, certainly, you know, a newspaper allows you to, um, you know, uh, think of things like uh, the weather, you know. And extraordinarily, uh, there were uh, two uh, English language newspapers uh, published in Canton in this period, yes. So uh, really, uh, one can build a a very detailed and accurate picture of uh, really what was happening every single day.
1: That is incredible. And how did you find those newspapers? Are they now digitized, or did you go to particular um, libraries? Uh,
0: It's not easy. I mean, you know, not many libraries have them, but a few do have them. I mean, the Canton Press and the Canton Register. So, um, yeah, some of them are digitized. But, you know, basically, uh, you just have to go and sit there in the library and look it up.
1: But that's part of the... the, um, it's sort of the adventure of knowing that you're creating and entering into the world.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: Ah, Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. And maybe if you don't mind reading, we'll hear about some of the, this, this world uh, that you've created today. Um, Amitav Ghosh is here, River of Smoke. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got text engineering. You've got living writers. We'll be right back. Back. if you're just joining us glad you did Amitav Ghosh is here today on living writers um, he's got river of smoke before him and also I should say uh, Amitav, you've you've picked all the the songs for today um what was the one we just what was why did you pick the one we just heard?
0: Uh, it's one of my favorite pieces of Indian classical music. Uh, uh, the singer is a, is a magnificent singer called Bhim Sen Joshi, who died quite recently. Uh, he's one of the greatest singers of all, and uh, really, I still find it hard to believe that uh, he's gone, you know. Uh, he was a very, very important part of my musical life and my musical imagining. And he's singing a rag called Rag Bhim Palasi, which is uh, one of my favorite rags. So uh, th- uh, this is one of my favorite tracks of all time.
1: And were you able to go see him perform live
0: as well? Yes, during? many, many times. Yes. Yes, he was he was marvelous to watch uh, like nobody else, uh, really. He was, I mean, he would sing himself into a complete trance and his whole body would become expressive of the music. It would become contorted. And uh, I mean, uh, it, it was, I mean, I, really, I've never seen anything like it.
1: It's... I w- I wonder also if there's this this way, because it sounds like you're talking about this transformation of the artist. And with with his work, you were able to see it in the moment. How, does that, how do you feel that's working with these fictional worlds that you're creating?
0: You know, it's interesting that you ask that, because it's often very similar for me when I'm writing. Uh, you know, that is, um, for me, writing is an intensely physical activity. And uh, just as, you know, one of the amazing things to watch with Bheem Sen Joshi when he was singing uh, is that he would really just his body would become completely contorted. He would twist himself into these, uh, into these thing, uh, into these various sort of uh, sorts of uh, poses. And and when I'm writing and I'm really into it, it's the same thing happens to me. My whole body becomes just completely contorted. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, I write first by hand, uh, so um, you know, uh, uh, so it becomes uh, it's a lot more expressive actually when you are writing by hand. And um, you know, I just twist myself into into knots, and it's uh, it's painful, it's intensely painful, and it's intensely demanding physically. I mean, at the end of a day's work, I feel so exhausted; I can barely walk down the stairs.
1: And so, and and fill this fill this out a bit for us, if you don't mind. Is it something that is your process where y- you make time each day? As long as they're the things of, you know, your commitments aren't... Uh, but are, are you writing every day? And is there sort of, is it over a span of hours that you devote each day?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you Hence know... Hence the
1: 500 pages before us, the 1,000 pages. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: I mean, you know, um, uh, long novels don't happen by accident, uh, you know. I mean, uh, uh, to, to, to write uh, 200,000 words is an enormous physical labor, you know. It's not... Uh, it doesn't happen by, by you know, just by <laughs> willing it, as it were. Uh, but you know, uh, what can I say? I mean, I, I just love to write. It's my it's my whole life. It's the it's the thing that I most enjoy doing. Um, uh, so you know, what I do is uh, I I get to my desk by by about nine nine thirty, and I basically work through the day. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> a couple of <laughs> some five or six years ago. I thought, you know, I mustn't work so much. I must work less. And, uh, you know, I would try and stop by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And then, uh, you know, I tried it for a couple of days, and I was so bored. And so it was just so awful because, you know, I thought, why am I doing this? I mean, I just love doing this. I love being at my desk and writing. So, you know, what's to stop me?
1: You were watching the talk shows and People's Court.
0: No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I, I wasn't doing that. But... Uh, You know, uh, for me, it's the most intense kind of um, enjoyment and pleasure and, uh, you know, and also, you know, uh, far beyond any of that, it's just uh, uh, a deepest kind of engagement. You know, you become so engaged uh, with your own mind and with what you're seeing and these vistas are opening up in front of you that uh, it's just it's just impossible to take yourself away from it you know
1: so do you find yourself kind of like your characters what um like for example, in Sea of Poppies, and the the with uh, D.T. She has a vision of a, a ship, even though she's in a landlocked. Like she would not have access to an ocean to see such a ship. But she's walking along, and suddenly she has a vision. And so, is this? Do you think when you're walking along, also in your day today, or coming down the stairs, are you also still having these these dreams and visions? And that's part of the reason they're working these these dreams and visions you give to your characters as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, an incredible amount of uh, imaginative work actually gets done at night. I mean, really in your sort of dream life. So
1: literally dreams. Yes.
0: Uh, Sometimes literally dreams, but sometimes just daydreaming, you know. Uh, I really do think that, you know... uh, when I hear about writing programs and so on and I've occasionally sort of, you know, led workshops and things, you know, I hear, I ask the students, uh, you know, what they're told about writing and they tell me all the rules that, you know, teachers tell them and so on. And I always think that, you know, the one thing that they're never told is that the most important part of writing is daydreaming, you know, and it's something that nobody can teach them really. And in fact the more they get bound to rules and so on the less they can daydream and that's really just the single most important thing and actually you know uh, uh there are uh, there are people who i suppose as they grow older can stop themselves daydreaming you know but oh, i how don't sad. And, yes i think it's very sad i mean i live completely um, you know when i'm writing in this uh, in, you know, in this sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what should I say? It's it's like a state of intoxication, you might say. You know, it's, uh, it's like you're living in a world uh, that's completely not the world of the real world that you see around you. I mean, you know, when I'm writing, uh, when I'm actually writing, uh, months go by and I hardly leave the house. Um, you know, I step out in the street and I look around and think, oh, my God, there are people walking about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who don't look anything like the people I'm seeing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, the strange thing is that uh, there's this mysterious connection between d- these visions, if you like, or this visionary, this, this dream world and the real world. I'll just i just give you one example of that. You know, uh, just happened two weeks ago. It was so Weird, really. You know, there's a character in Sea of Poppies and River of Smoke called Benjamin Burnham. And he was really a completely fictional character. I mean, um, you know, some of the characters in these, in these books are historical characters. But this, this character was not. And I remember, I, you know, I went through many names uh, trying to name him. And I tried to think of many different names. And almost at random, uh, I arrived at this name, Benjamin Burnham. And he's an opium merchant, an English opium merchant in, in early 19th century Calcutta, and I, you know, absolutely no connection with any real character so far as I knew. Uh, two or three weeks ago, I got a letter from a woman, an American, saying, uh, you know, uh, I was doing research on my uh, on my family, and I see you've written a book about my ancestor Benjamin Burnham, who was a merchant in India in the uh, in the uh, you know, uh, in the seventeenth century, and she sent me all the all the information about him and the genealogy.
1: And was it was he strangely coming to life? Was was some of the information the, like more of it matching up with what? Or 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 was I mean, this isn't it is its incredible.
0: The information was uh, I mean was not uh, so uh, it, you know there wasn't uh, there wasn't enough detail in it to make out exactly what this guy had done but he'd obviously been um, you know an,
1: an opium merchant
0: Uh I he he'd been a merchant in India uh, so in any case So the
1: possibility would be high
0: Yes yes yes
1: I didn't mean that as a joke yes oh terrible <laughs> But yes
0: Uh yeah um So it was a very, uh, you know, I mean, so these things happen all the time. You find these mysterious connections and these mysterious um, synchronicities, if you like. So
1: how did you respond to her? You had to say, well, it wasn't meant to be about your relative, but how interesting or what did you say?
0: Uh, Yes, I wrote back to her and said, uh, you know, this is really completely astonishing. I thought he was um, he was fictional. But uh, actually, you know, after, I've, uh, after these books were published, so many people write to me and say, you know, my family history is exactly like such and such characters. I get so many letters from people in Hong Kong, uh, you know, saying that, you know, uh, our family history is like the histories of uh, these families that you describe. Mm-hmm. So you're really, you're getting it right I, I think at some level I must have done because, um, you know, um, how do you have these resonances?
1: Yes. Does it deepen the work now that you're you're actually having letters from people now? Like, does it, do you feel, uh, does it change how you feel about the work, about the project itself? And almost the, the uh, I don't want to say, well, the duty to write it or so. Um,
0: You know, I'm not doing it out of a sense of duty. (laughs) Yeah, mm.
1: that's not the right word at all. Well, does it deepen the work to know that there's people out there that are feeling that this is... Actually, I mean, you're not intending it to be a historical record, obviously, but you also said there hasn't been a lot of work in this time. Mm. And uh, so I I don't know. Does it change the...
0: Uh, just what you feel like you must do with it. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I certainly do feel that. But, you know, this is not my first experience of this because I wrote a book called The Glass Palace. And that, too, was really about uh, various kinds of experience that um, uh, really had not been written about. You know, there was this this incredible sort of exodus uh, from Burma in 1941-42, which um, really is very little known and very little written about especially from an Indian perspective. And after I wrote it, you know, um, so many uh, people wrote to me saying that, you know, uh, you validated these experiences that I that I heard about as a child. And, and they write to me. I, I post their stuff on my website all the time. Now, I mean, in fact, in some strange way, uh, my website has become a kind of clearinghouse for people who write in with their experiences of these things.
1: And then they can also, so people are writing directly to the the site, and then other people can, yes they can convert through comments. They can communicate with each other as well. That's right. That's wonderful. Well, let's talk more about that when we come back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Today, Amitav Ghosh, his books, Sea of Poppies river of smoke i promise when we come back you'll hear some of river of smoke and we'll talk more about your website too Sure, um, we'll be right back back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel on wcbn fm ann arbor today amitav Ghosh is here um before we get carried away in com- conversation again i should say uh you'll have a chance to to see amitav Ghosh at the university art museum at uma uh this this thursday at five um and now would you mind reading a short bit just so everyone can get a sense of the prose.
0: Sure. Uh, this is from a, a letter written by a young artist uh, who's just gone to uh, to Canton, and he's describing the foreign and uh, he's describing the city.
1: Is this an invented character, or is this really a, like a son of a famous painter that was? Is this?
0: Yes, this character is called Robin Chinnery. His father um, was George Chinnery, who's actually a. Um, uh, a very well known uh, english painter who was in uh, who was in india and china in the late 18th and uh, early 19th centuries and um, uh, you know george Chinnery did have a, have a, a, a two sons with his indian mistress and this is one of those sons yes you may not credit it but the greatest of canton's suburbs is the river itself there are more people living in the, city, in the city's floating bastis than in all of Calcutta. Fully one million, some say. Their boats are moored along the water's edge on either side, and they are so numerous you cannot see the water beneath. At first, this floating city looks like a vast shantytown made of driftwood, bamboo and thatch. The boats are so tightly packed that if not for the rolls and tremors that shake them from time to time, you would take them for oddly shaped huts. Closest to the shore are rows of sampans, most of them some four or five yards in length. Their roofs are made of bamboo, and their design is at once very simple and marvelously ingenious, for they can be moved to suit the weather. When it rains, the coverings are rearranged to protect the whole boat, and on fine days they are rolled back to expose the living quarters to the sun, and it is astonishing to observe all that goes on within them. The occupants are all so busy that you would imagine the floating city to be a waterborne hive. Um, I I wanted to read this because, you know, in a strange uh, coincidence, I was on uh, uh, my flight from uh, uh, to the U.S. uh, two or three days ago. I was on this uh, very, very long flight on a plane which had lots of uh, film choices. And um, I'm afraid by this time uh, I, I find that there are almost no Hollywood movies I feel like seeing, or I've already seen them, and they're all about, you know, uh, things that, <laughs> I mean, vampires or. Uh,
1: Even Abraham Lincoln is. is about a now. vampire, <laughs> yes, I
0: gather. So uh, I, I was flipping through all these uh, channels of movies, and I chanced upon a really interesting Cantonese movie called Floating City. And I do recommend it to anyone um, you know who happens to be at a loss for a nice movie to watch. Uh, it, it, it was a really lovely movie about uh, uh, you know uh, these uh, boat people who lived around H- Canton and Hong Kong, who lived on these boats in the so-called floating cities.
1: And it's a good and and it was lovely how you you created. We we could see the river and these these floating cities in in your, this piece you just read for us. Why why did you also choose to use letters? Is it also is it something from also personal experience because you you were no stranger to traveling uh and still travel obviously. Um and were you always writing letters home and or to people you care about? Is it some sort is the letter uh like <laughs> a, a, a good like a vehicle that's different like how is it different in the novel than Bringing the character to the place, or what does it allow
0: the the letters um, uh, you know f- for many reasons, one is that I was reading a lot of letters uh, as I was writing these books because a lot of the a lot of the merchants who were in Canton in that period they wrote a lot of letters, so that was interesting to read. but also you know um, the letter creates a different temporal f- framework, you know. Because, uh, I mean, most of this book is written in the, in the narrative past, you know. Uh, but the letter, uh, a letter is written in the present, you see. So it, it, it provides, to me at least, an, an interesting contrast uh, between, you know, two, two forms of narration, if you like. The other thing is that the letter provide uh, you know, letters give you a sense of immediacy, you know. It gives you a sense of being absolutely there at that moment, observing what's happening around you. And there again, it adds to, if you like, it adds to the texture, I think. But, you know, all that I can say in retrospect. But, uh, in fact, uh, you know, it was when I started writing, I just started writing the letters and they uh, just came pouring out. It was so much fun to write and it was so interesting. And, you know, um, (laughs) they're written in a kind of uh, Victorian voice, you know. uh, And I was reading so many of those letters that... uh, uh, it it was like ventriloquizing them in some sense.
1: It was easy to channel them. Yes, and it really just happened. Just the day at nine or nine thirty, when you sat down, you you started write it, drafting out the letter.
0: Yes, I actually know the exact date when I started writing out the letters. Yeah, uh, because uh, you know sometimes with a book you read you reach a kind of very critical, uh, uh, you you reach a kind of impasse. You reach a uh, a point where you realize that it's not, uh, you know, that there's something that needs to be unlocked there, and uh, the letters really did it for me. Yes.
1: What mm. date was it?
0: I'm not going to tell you.
1: Oh, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> what can be? Okay. All right. <laughs> the mysteri- the mysteries of Amitath grow. <laughs> um, but so, so the letters were. It, it was important for this this piece with. Um, Thinking for a moment about your travels and um, when we were walking towards the studio, briefly we spoke of the time when you, after, uh, after Oxford was it, you went for so, uh, was it social anthropology to Egypt, to Alexandria, Egypt, to, to a village. Um, what was that like in your development as a writer? Because you were also there as an anthropologist as well.
0: You know, I would really say that I was there as a traveler. Okay. Because I wanted to be, you know, the reason I ended up doing um, anthropology for a short while uh, was because, you know, uh, I wanted to travel. And this seemed uh, like a very intensive way of traveling. So, you know, I, I, I felt myself to be a, a traveler there. And it was very, and very important to me. What does that me.
1: mean when you say I felt, because I feel like you've got a definition of it. Like, what does being a traveler mean?
0: You know, for me, to uh, to be a traveller, it means not so much. uh, uh, It means exploring a place, if you like. You know, but for me, being in uh, being in that village, uh, it was, I I suppose, my my equivalent of writing school, uh, because I never did any of those uh, writing programs or anything, and I don't think I would have been at all suited to them. But you know, to live in a small village. Uh, is actually a very, it's it's something very. You have lots and lots of time. In many ways, it's incredibly dull. You know, I mean, really, the excitement of the day is when a cow gets loose and goes running down the into the meadow or something. So it's the, it's that kind of thing, you know. But uh, at the same time, it's incredibly exciting because. Uh, but the excitement lies in these long conversations that you have with people. So, you know, for me, it was two things. One was, uh, you know, writing intensively to um, to write and record what I was seeing. And I felt that that was a very important part of my training, because uh, a training f- to be a, a novelist, if you like. Because what you're re- really doing there is that you're learning to observe, you know. And not just learning to observe what you see around you, but you're learning to observe language you're learning to observe what people are saying. And, you know, in my case, I'm hearing them in Arabic and I'm writing it in English. So, uh, you know, uh, that was, I mean, that in some sense is very much very central to my way of writing because, you know, all these characters in these books speak many different languages. So that was one part of it. The other part of it was that I read a lot. I read and read and read. And been, you know, A hundred
1: years of solitude there.
0: Yes, that was one book that I read there, and that had a very powerful impact on me. Many, many books. You know, I just read constantly while I was there. So, uh, you know, in, in, so in, and I think that writing grows out of reading, really. So, you know, uh, in that way, it was very sort of, it played a very important part in my formation as a writer.
1: So this learning to observe and the training of recording it and then this time with reading mm. and entering these, because that 100 years of solitude, of course, is also an, a big book.
0: Mm. And
1: I think you're quoted
0: as saying, I like big
1: books. <laughs> I do, yes. Yes. And so, and so this it, it makes sense that this becomes your form as well. Uh,
0: yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know... Uh uh, people tell, uh, sometimes say to me, "Why don't you write short stories?" Um, why?
1: Yeah. Why? How does that question occur to them?
0: <laughs> you know, it's just that I'm by nature a kind of long-distance runner. You know, some people are sprinters, some people are long-distance runners, and to me, the comf- the form I feel really comfortable with is 180,000 words. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> which would be for many people three books. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: Well, you mentioned language too. Could we talk a little bit about the when languages are, are mixing up because you have a really mixing to combine into a new wonderful like pidgin language? How what role does that play in this creating this world? And was it part two part question here, I'm a tough. Is it also what was the first character that, that came to you? And was this language part of that character or
0: Uh, Yeah, often they are part of the character. You know, uh, I knew when I was writing these, when I started writing this um, uh, this trilogy, that uh, I was writing about a very, very multilingual world. You know, um, this was a world that's completely sort of diverse in terms of language. So, how do I give the reader a sense of that? Obviously, you can't write a novel in three or four languages, so you have to write it in a single language. So, it was a way of giving them a sense. Uh, of, uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of uh, ling- uh, the linguistic chaos uh, into which you enter, in a sense. And uh, I wanted to recreate, as it were, the experience of, a, of a, say, a sailor like Zachary. He's entering this world where he's constantly hearing uh, languages spoken around him that he doesn't understand. So incomprehension is itself of such an important part of, uh, you know, of travel, uh, of entering new situations. And I often get people sort of saying to me that, you know, uh, you know, uh, why do you put in words that we don't understand or why why do you put in, um, you know, unfamiliar words and things? And, uh, you know, that really doesn't make any sense to me because my experience of reading was itself of this kind. You know, for example, uh, when I was reading uh, books about, say, America as a child, I mean, I didn't really know what a prairie is, you know. I don't know what, uh, I mean, it had no visual uh, meaning for me, you know. But yet, you can understand that. That's the whole point of of reading. You make these uh, imaginative leaps. But, you know, even to go beyond that, I mean, so many Americans uh, read Melville, for example, you know, Uh, Moby Dick and so on. And I've tried this repeatedly, uh, you know, in in a sort of uh, auditorium, an American auditorium. I'll ask people, I'll say to them, well, you've all read Melville. And really, I think any American who goes through school reads Melville. And I say to them, how many of you can really tell me what a mast is? <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it's very, very rare that any of them knows really what a mast is or mm. what a stay sale is or, you know. Uh, so... But at the same time, they have a general sense that it's a part of a ship. So, you know, it seemed to me that, in fact, if you ask people for their real experience of language, language is never transparent. And why should language be transparent? I mean, that's not my experience of language.
1: Even the idea of traveler, because if we were going to actually really talk about what you believed a traveler, what like what made a traveler or what that was, that could be a whole hour of conversation. Yes. So similarly with that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, I think the whole uh, business of, tra- of travel is of, you know, entering situations that you don't understand.
1: And novels. And new worlds. The new world of a novel.
0: Yes. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> Let's take a short break and then we'll sure. come back. You've got Living Writers. Amitav Ghosh is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. back you've got living writers i'm t hetzel today amitav Ghosh is here sea of poppies river of smoke um the ibis trilogy or perhaps the quartet or we don't know it, it's growing at the moment did you uh, did you ever read Lawrence Durrell's uh, alexandria quartet when you when you were in egypt or
0: <laughs> i did I did. Yes, I I, I read uh, Lawrence Durrell in Alexandria. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Bragger, no, <laughs> no, but that's what I was wondering if that was the right, the, you know. Sometimes there's the right moment for a
0: book. Um, or a... Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it was a very, uh, it, it was an extraordinary experience reading him in, in Alexandria. Uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, while writing this trilogy, I've often thought of uh, thought of um, the Alexandria Quartet because, you know, the the relationship between the books there um, is not a relationship of succession necessarily; it's a kind of angular relationship, and that's what I love about it. Yeah,
1: that was the first time as a reader I had ever uh,
0: experienced that. Uh, yes, but. Uh, actually, there was a lot of writing around then. Um, uh, Anthony Powell's uh, uh, books were also quite like that. So, uh, yes, I mean, I think many people were writing in uh, in uh, in that way,
1: and sort of experimenting with this idea of the movement of time, yes. and then the, as you said, the angle of the That's perspective.
0: Right. In fact, Anthony Powell's uh, a series was called "A Dance to the Music of Time."
1: Uh yes. so showing his hand a bit more with, yes. the, <laughs> yes. with the series title. Yes. Yes. Well, um I I let's talk a little more about your your website because that's sure. of course one of the places I visited <laughs> um virtually, um, to try to get to know you before I, I ha- our conversation, Amitav. Um w- when did you start your website? Was it something that you you as a writer wanted to do or was it something that sort of you were tapped to do because it's part of having a presence of your your books in the world and um
0: I've had a website for a long time but I've uh, become gradually more and more involved with it uh especially I've become more and more involved in the sort of uh, in the creation of my website and in and in uh, you know uh in writing for my website Uh, You know, the reasons are many. One is that I do think that the Internet has profoundly altered the relationship between um, readers and writers, you know, um, in a a very, very deep and significant way. And I do feel that, you know, um, writers have to take this on board, Um, have to understand, you know, that there's a new kind of relationship that's come into being. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is that I think at this moment in time, uh, writers and readers uh, actually have a much more sort of dialogical connection, that they're in dialogue with each other. But even more than that, you know, reading has become a part, uh, a writer's readership is a, is like a community, you know. So you're actually, in writing, you're actually, in a sense, addressing a community of readers. You know, and the readers are not in any particular place. They're sort of spread out uh, in many different places. And, uh, you know, that has been uh, a very, very exciting thing to do, you know, to be in this constant sort of uh, evolving conversation with, uh, you know, uh, um, with my readership. And they, you know, people write to me all the time and I, um, uh, I write back to them. And that's happened for years. So, you know, and I always felt that, you know, so many people are writing to me and I want this conversation to be, uh, you know, to be, uh, to find some, to find some sort of, um, uh, to find some sort of place in the, uh, in the world at large.
1: And now it has its place. Because the conversation can be read by, by many, and more are invited to join it, in a way, from one person's questions or.
0: Yes. Yes, it's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's one aspect of it. But there's another aspect of it too, which is that. you know uh uh, uh there is uh, you know there, there's a very important uh, sense in which for me now you know i when i wrote essays and um, and so on before i wouldn't i would generally do it for for a magazine or a journal or something you know and uh, you know actually it was a very sort of uh, at a certain point, it became very hard going because I just got sick of dealing with editors, you know, dealing with editors. And really, when you're writing for a magazine in some way, some, some, some subconscious way, you're tuning what you say to, uh, you know, what you think uh, appears between their covers. Right. You know, and I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And in fact, then I started to ask myself, why do I even do that? It's not like uh, uh, magazines pay you so much money that uh, to make it worthwhile. And so really, in a sense, I'd almost stopped writing nonfiction. And actually, it's such a large part of my life. I enjoy writing uh, essays. I enjoy writing, uh, you know, uh, stuff uh, about things I see. And, you know, I have reams and reams of uh, um, notes from, my, from the past. I have diaries, journals. And I could never think... I'm not one of those people who could ever think of writing uh, an autobiography. It's just not, not of interest to me. But in a way, what my blog has become for me now is that it's, a, it's like an autobiography in real time, you know? So sometimes I write about my... Um, you know, I, I just put bits of my journals uh, on them. And sometimes, uh, you know, I, I write about things I see. I write about what's in my head, and uh, you know, it's it's just incredibly enjoyable. It's just a little break from you know the others uh, from writing fiction. And uh, I must say, uh, it, it, then I review books. I write about other people's books. I you know, and that again is something that's incredibly interesting to do for me. So it has become, I must say, a very important part of my life now and the, what's really rewarding about it also is that so many uh, 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 people actually do follow it you know i mean it gets like uh, half a million hits a month yes.
1: and so that's really then that's it's no longer this imagined audience at all for the writer <laughs>
0: No, and it's it's kind of extraordinary to look at the uh, you know because you, you have can those see the maps
1: of where they are the from and, yeah.
0: and consistently uh, my the three countries which are interchangeably uh, where my most of my visitors come from are the U.S., India, and China, and I get a lot of visitors from Asia. I get a lot of visitors from uh, from Russia. Uh, I get visitors, uh, you know, from uh, so many unexpected places, from Brazil. And, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, a remarkable thing. You suddenly feel that, you know, there is uh, a a whole world out there which wants to interact through this interface with, uh, you know, um, an an experience of writing.
1: And I wonder if many of them are coming because they're so intrigued with this this world of the 1830s and that that you're creating here in these in the ibis trilogy
0: i think a lot of them come for, uh, for that but um, you know there's other things too they come through my other books and you know uh, for me now uh, in many ways my principal concern outside my fiction uh, really is climate change uh, so um, you know a lot of i write about that a lot i write about um you know uh, so many people come for for that as well because i do feel that in uh, especially in asia uh, people haven't engaged as much with uh, issues of climate change as they should because you know uh, especially where i'm from which is bengal um it's a it's very very vulnerable to climate change and i myself have seen uh, islands that I kn- uh, that I knew, you know, uh, disappearing, and you see increasingly, you know, uh, Bengal has about a hundred million people living within one meter of sea level uh, right at this moment. So you know. So
1: the stakes are high with. The, very very. With the high, rising yes. water as yes. well. Um, it's so interesting. To, that you said that about essays with and feeling constrained because you feel like the spirit of those would be to make an attempt. Like the...
0: Uh, the yeah. The, the, and... I can't tell you what a liberating feeling it is to, uh, to just be directly communicating yes. uh, with your readership. Because, I mean, they're the readers I want to address. Yes, uh, I don't necessarily want to address the readers of uh, some magazine, who, uh, which I don't really know. But just to have the sense of not having to deal with those editors, it's like... You know, it's just like like some great, uh, you know, a filter taken out, you know. And it's, uh, I mean, it's just so pleasurable. I mean, you know, I edit myself pretty rigorously, so... Uh, I try and uh, you know um, keep up the standards, if you like. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it's just so uh, it's just it's just so pleasant, and to be able to talk about anything you want, and you know, uh, to talk about what's in your mind, and uh, you know, the things you're thinking about,
1: and what you care about. Yeah, as you what just I said. care
0: about. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So it is. Uh, you know, it's been a really wonderful thing to. Uh, be writing, uh, uh, to be writing this blog it really does open up I think uh, a new dimension of, uh, of, of writing and of communication
1: and would you for, for young writers out there too would you encourage them to be inv- so it sounds like investigate the, the blog as a, as a way to be writing and getting your voice out there
0: Uh, I think so. Uh, I do think so. Uh, You know, um, I think there are so many more sorts of options now for younger writers, so many more than, uh, you know, um, than were available, let's say, Uh, Ten or fifteen years ago, and absolutely, they do have to. uh, They do have to find some way into it. You know, the problem is that uh, the 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 thing is that I'm fortunate at this point because I have a readership. Yes. So I don't have to worry about. um, You know, I don't have to worry about monetizing my blog, and that's not my idea at all. You know.
1: uh, mm, Well, no, because that would change it again. That's not. That's not the spirit of it. This this reminds me more of. how you said as as um when you when you were starting v s Nepal and James Baldwin, these were writers that that you loved, and I think v s Nepal you had said um there was a detachment um a writer that that's going to write about something but not become involved and in one of your essays, the Ghost of mrs. Gandhi, you said there's a moment where you make a choice where you're not you're going to join in a march or you're going to be involved, and I feel like this is the the through line is this also this way of blogging connecting directly with your readership Uh,
0: yes but I I, you know the the really wonderful thing about uh, about the blog as a form I think is that it doesn't have to have uh, any kind of purpose I mean I don't think of it as being uh, geared towards any particular purpose I I, I mean it's not as if I'm doing it in order to uh, you know Um, push some line or sell books or whatever it's uh, it's uh, it it, to me it seems really the freest form of expression that I can imagine Uh, you know uh, it's really just uh, what I want to say that day Uh, but you know that arises out of a lifetime of reading and thinking and writing (laughs) and
1: then being brave enough to say it that day
0: (laughs) Yes, because, you know, uh, historically, uh, writers have sort of uh, tried to uh, remove themselves uh, from uh, a communication with their audiences. And I feel and I don't feel inclined to do that. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Today on Living
1: Writers, Amitav Ghosh has been here. He'll be reading or speaking, speaking at UMA at the Art Museum, Thursday at 5, Sea of Poppies, River of Smoke, another one to come. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks so much, Amitav. Thank you. (laughs) Until next time.
0: Thank you. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, December 5th, 2012. In Kansas City, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up, U.S. lawmakers move forward the National Defense Authorization Act, but controversial provisions on Guantanamo Bay may provoke a presidential veto. In New York, activists continue their fight against the police department's controversial stop and frisk, and pressure increases in Oakland, California after officials' attempt to push through acquisition of a surveillance drone. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRM. 450 Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach clerical workers went back to work today after an eight-day strike. Thousands of longshore workers had joined them in solidarity, bringing shipping operations to a standstill at the nation's largest cargo terminal. FSRN's Chris Bennett reports.
1: The International Longshore and Warehouse Workers, Local 63, and Port Management reached an agreement two hours after federal negotiators arrived to help mediate the conflict Tuesday. Terms of the accord are not yet public and still subject to approval by the union. The clerical workers had demanded that their jobs remain in Southern California, and that management cease the practice of outsourcing middle-class jobs to low-wage states and countries. The ports denied they were doing this, but union spokesman Craig Merrily said the issue of job outsourcing had been resolved. After the deal was announced, L.A. Mayor Antonio Villaragosa told Reuters, quote, the employers are not going to outsource. At least 18 freight ships diverted their cargo during the strike to other ports in Mexico, Panama, and Northern California. Chris Bennett, FSRN, Los Angeles.
0: Students are rallying on the campus of the University of Iowa today, the action in Iowa.